Hello and welcome to Notes from Musicians' Kitchens. I'm Jennifer Johnston and during this series I'll be talking to prominent music professionals about the relationship between food and music and everything in between. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a subscription-only online cookbook and mixology resource written by musicians from all over the world sharing their food traditions and tastes to raise money for Help Musicians UK, a charity offering one-off hardship grants to musicians adversely affected by the music industry shutdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. Food is not just a universal need, but also a universal link to our homes and communities, and a universal pleasure, just like music. We rely on food in the same way that we rely on music during extraordinary times like these to bring structure and a feeling of normality to our days, to alleviate boredom and frustration, to entertain, to strengthen the feeling of community, and to bring comfort, joy, and solace. Notes from Musicians' Kitchens is a means of digitally breaking bread with each other, of sharing and appreciating our diverse food cultures, and of creating new memories. Please subscribe at www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's a one-off payment of only £10, every penny of which is a donation to Help Musicians UK. And you can also follow our progress on our dedicated Facebook and Instagram pages. I am delighted that my guests this week are conductor Robert Trevino and his wife, the pianist Julia Siciliano, who talk to me from their home in Malmo. Although the rest of Europe has locked down in the face of COVID-19, Sweden has remained open, and so Robert chief conductor of the Malmo Symphony Orchestra, has become a pioneer in trialling how to keep live performances going in this new age of social distancing. You'll hear him speak powerfully about what he thinks the classical music industry will have to do to stay relevant and alive. He'll talk about his childhood in poverty in Texas and, movingly, impart his beliefs about living a life of service and his own mortality. We'll also find out who does the cooking in their household, and how important chopped chip cookies have been. But first, a huge thanks to the sponsors of this series, Berry and Rye, Liverpool's beloved speakeasy, hidden behind an anonymous black door, a cocktail bar with a heart and great jazz. During lockdown, we've all become very aware of how important local businesses are within their communities. Berry and Rye and their mixologists, the best in the business, have set up a delivery service on Fridays and Saturdays where they bring their signature cocktails ready mixed to your door. Hugely appreciated, especially by parents who faced a stressful week of homeschooling. Cocktails available include classics like Negroni, Manhattan and Old Fashioned. And all you need to worry about is whether you have ice in the house. You can find them on Instagram as at Berry and Rye. Now to introduce my guests. Robert Trevino, Chief Conductor of the Malmo Symphony Orchestra and Musical Director of the Basque National Orchestra in Spain, grew up in Fort Worth in Texas, the child of Mexican parents who moved to the US for work and to give their children a better life, and who found themselves on the breadline. Having heard Mozart on the radio sitting in his dad's truck, he resolved to be a musician and taught himself to read music and play the bassoon so that he could join the school band. 
conducting his first concert at the tender age of 16. His meteoric rise is testament to his talent and his major international breakthrough came when he stepped in at the very last minute to conduct Verdi's Don Carlo at the Bolshoi Opera in Moscow to universal acclaim. His Italian-American wife, Julia Siciliano, is a solo and collaborative pianist and chamber musician whose passionate and skilled performances have garnered rave reviews. As a couple, they are consummate musicians and true foodies, as well as great company, and I'm delighted that they are joining me today. Welcome, Robert and Julia. It's so lovely to see you both. How's it been going in Sweden? Been busy. It's, we're not experiencing the same climate as everyone else. No, it's a curious feature of Sweden that they're the odd man out in Europe. You've not been on full lockdown like everybody else. How, how has that been in terms of daily life for you guys? Uh, really, honestly, everything is more or less the same. Some specifics are a little bit different. Of course, if you're walking down the street, people usually cross the street and try to be on the other side. If you are in a shop, people stand very far away from you but you're still able to function and do things. Of course, from the musical perspective, we don't have audiences We're, uh, like everyone else. And we are still assembling our orchestra here, but under very, very different circumstances. A much smaller orchestra is assembled, and we have to have um, a lot of protections as far as how long the people are allowed to be exposed to one another. And then we have also a lot of uh, reporting mechanisms within the orchestra to make sure people who are sick or who are not doing well or... Uh, somebody that they know is sick, that they inform the orchestra and don't show up. You are actually one of the very few symphony orchestras, not just in Europe, but in the world that's currently functioning. And so actually what you're doing is, I suppose, laying a path for everyone else, in some ways trialling how things are for, for everybody else or how they will be in, in the coming months once lockdown gradually starts to lift. Have you found any particular issues with dealing with not just social distancing, but also um, worries of the orchestra in terms of their health or in terms of dealing with the public at large at home? Have, have they been grateful for the efforts that you've shown to stay open and keep performing? There's a lot of difficulties in this time. It's interesting because uh, as I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but in two weeks I'm leaving to Spain. And uh, my orchestra there, the Bass National Orchestra, we're going to open the orchestra and start activities. We have eight concerts in four weeks on the television that we're going to be giving. And that's at the time when Mamo Symphony Orchestra goes on their planned summer vacation. The Bass National Orchestra being uh, opening, it will be a very different thing because it's going to be a country and an orchestra that was on complete lockdown and perhaps one of the, the more severe lockdowns. Most of the people in the orchestra have been in their apartment for six weeks. However, I find many of the, the challenges to be similar from Momo even to there. Namely, I, I think if we can talk from the positive point of view, those of us who are fortunate enough to be extremely busy like yourself are usually jet-setting around the world and popping in for a quick rehearsal and doing a performance and then taking a 6 a.m. flight to the next place and going on like that. It's pretty intense. And we, I think we all, before the corona lockdown happened, I think all of us were kind of musing and daydreaming about having a little bit more time off. I don't think many people expected to have to have <laughs> months required time off. Yeah, but into Jennifer's 
other question about how is the public responding? I mean, there's been a huge positive public response to the concerts that the orchestra is putting on. And the, the interesting thing is that, of course, it's not even just a local response, although the people who were subscribers to the Moments of the Orchestra are, are extremely grateful to keep seeing their concerts. We're now getting an international response, too, because anybody around the globe can watch these. They're live streamed on the Internet. I've heard some of the most incredible words of people just saying just this one concert a week has been so uplifting for them. It's basically, I think the world is beginning to see that music is a necessity. It's about time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. There's also, um, I think also when, when somebody can see an orchestra assemble on a stage in the circumstances that everybody's on these quarantines and lockdowns, it is the, the, one of the few occasions in which you can see something nowadays and say, oh, that's what life used to be like with other people. And I suppose these people are doing it. So then that surely means we will get back to it. And it's kind of an optimistic thing, even though it's greatly reduced. I mean, Mama's been able to have eight, 90 musicians. We're 42 members on stage. Uh, we did a concert last week where um, we only were 15 musicians. And next week we're doing a concert that we're gonna go back up to 42. I think that, that that's important. And what I have found is that the musicians have been, of course, really, really, really excited to get back to, to making music. I and mean, they felt like, for the most part, that their voices were taken and their relevance, their self-identity. Most of us musicians have been doing this for our entire lives. We have lost marriages. We have lost relationships, families. We have lost our nerves and have health issues and so we are alone, and yet at the same time, we do all of these things in the negative sense because of what we can do for other people with our art form. And so having suddenly not to be even able to do that, it just, I know some musicians who I spoke to, it, it almost broke them. I think a lot of people have taken the, the negative impulse and taken it in and allowed that to define what is coming in and how we're going to go forward. And I have been very, very aware of not allowing that. And since you know, you were with us when we had the first concert in Malmo, where we suddenly got the notice that we were only going to have 500 people in the audience for Oedipus Rex when we were supposed to have a sold-out audience of 1,700 people. And you remember how often I was like on the phone during that time calling people and working. But, but I had already been having those conversations with the government a week prior. And I was telling Julia, I mean, I saw the coronavirus thing coming up and I said, saw it coming a few months before and said, this is probably going to be very bad. We better start getting things ready because things are going to just not be like they are normally. And I was sadly proven correct about the issue. And I remember I had one meeting with a particular politician who said, well, we just want to close the orchestra for this week and we'll reopen it next week when we have a bit more information. And I said to them, in your circumstance, can you tell me exactly what is what information, new information you will receive in one week that will give you the confidence to call back the orchestra to work? What is that information that you will receive? They gave me a very blank look. And I said, there is no information you're going to receive in one week that will make you feel confident to put your own reputation and your position on the line. So let me work with you and let's cut back things Let's cut back as much as we can and we need to in order to stay above the health measures that we've been given. So we haven't gone against any of that. 
if anything, the health measures were given to us, we were already implementing them before the new ones were coming up. And when they became more severe, we already implemented them the weeks before. And we've maintained always higher standards than what the health authorities have insisted on us. And they have been coming in every week and examining the, the workplace and engaging with our orchestra to make extremely safe conditions. Do I personally wish we could do a heck of a lot more? Oh, you bet you. You know, everybody needs to do things right. And I'm not a, a health expert, so I, I'm in no position and I don't want to be in that position. But however, I am in a position to advocate for being able to maintain the orchestra's relevance to the society, not only in the case of Malmo Symphony Orchestra being relevant to the people of Malmo, but actually it turns out being relevant to the whole world because music has gone silent. And the minute the orchestra, you know, in Spain, just even a few days ago, now people could start to go out to the parks uh, and just go out more than 100 meters away from their home. So in two weeks, having the orchestra, the whole orchestra hall in Spain has been sanitized. We have thousands of face masks. The health ministers have went through there and measured all the seats. We did a seating graph. We have an entry and exit plan for the rehearsals so that there's no socializing. All of these different things are being put into place so that we can manage the situation. The minute you you have a, you, the ability to do something, you have to do it. I find that one of the big problems that we in our art form have been suffering is it's not an issue of relevance because I think people who, who love what we do, we will always be relevant to them. But sometimes we in our art form have really been guilty of sitting in our towers or in our castles on the top of the hill and then saying, we are important because we are important. You should support us because we are important, which I'm frankly, I, I believe that those are the most empty and absurd intellectual arguments you can possibly make in any circumstance. And somehow we think, oh, because we're artists, we're entitled to make such vapid you know, arguments. And I don't see it that way. We have to argue for our case as much as anybody else, but we need to also be able to show that we are there for people when it's really not convenient and when it's very, very difficult. And we need to show that, as I always say, that we have a social contract with the society we live in, especially in Europe where the orchestras are fully subsidized by the public dollar. I think it's a different situation in the UK. There's so little government subsidy for, for your art form. London players are playing three gigs a day, basically just to try to survive to live in London, which is required because that's where all the work is. I mean, it's it's a horrible closed loop. And I would love to see the UK that whenever this is all opening up, that they start to kind of reconsider their position about the arts. But on the other side of that, where you talk about it here in Europe, that social contract is already understood. The person who washes the floors at the hospital or cleans out the poop from the sewage system, they're paying for the Malmo Symphony Orchestra or the Bass National Orchestra or the Berlin Philharmonic or whatever orchestra it is. So the fact that you, we are not actively always trying to engage and not using these, I'm sorry to call it stupid catchphrases of, we want inclusivity for everybody. No, don't, don't give me that line. Do it. Don't talk about it. Do it. How much do you care about the people you serve? And that's been the thing that has allowed Malmo Symphony Orchestra to stay open and the thing that allowed the Uskarifa Orchestra to stay open is that I've always been saying that to them and creating an environment where we have that really very difficult conversation about are we doing enough? And the answer is always a resounding no. 
Yeah, it's a very different scenario in the UK for the reasons you've outlined. But it's also similar in that the community of the UK need the arts more than ever right now. Mm. And if we don't support the orchestras and the opera houses and the individual freelance musicians, then we will fall by the wayside very rapidly. It's yet to be seen how bad it's going to be. We are still on full lockdown here in the UK, of course. So although they are considering a way out, scientifically, we're having to wait and see what any of the results are from whether it be vaccine trials or medicine trials or simply just observation in the population. As for the future of the arts in the UK, it's hard to know also because with the lockdown has come potentially huge economic problems. And so the government in this country may well choose to cut the arts the first as they usually have in the past. So it could be that we face an even bleaker position than we know. As for the full funding, though, from a state into an orchestra, I think it's so sensible because, as you say, it is a social contract then. And so it it was a delight to see that not only were you still working, but adapting. And I think in the coming months, the model that you're putting together is going to be used widely. So um, I think pat yourself on the back, Robert, this is a this is a situation of being a real pioneer. And so the more measures you can test out for the benefit of the whole musical community, really, the better. It's actually using it, my experiences as a way to encourage other people to find the solution and to see that, in fact, actually the solutions are being tried. And strangely, they're not being spoken about so much, but I, I heard a, a discussion between some artistic leaders just this morning, and they were posing tons of questions to each other, which... Frankly, I've answered that with my orchestra here in Malmo. How is it going to go? Well, it has gone like this, and it could go like this, like what I'm doing in Spain. So there, there are a lot of questions, and every day there's new challenges to try to figure it, uh, to, to sort out. So, for example, in Spain, you know, we don't know whether we're going to have audiences in September. So what are we doing? Uh, we're, we're putting in a plans to be able to double our concerts on every day. We're putting in plans to also discuss me canceling some of my guest engagements so that I can stay in Spain an extra week to then cover those extra performances. Talking about me going to Malmo and then doing block, make blocking out this season and doing different scheduling. In the case of the Bass Orchestra, we're trying to um, cultivate um, more of our relationship with our local artists who are really spectacular, who we already had the compromise to work with them, but we were doing it at a much more sort of diluted rate. But... I also am deeply afraid of people going overly nationalistic or localistic, if I could use that weird way of saying it. I, it would be better to do something that is overly local than not do something. But we have to keep in mind the fact that actually the we as a, as a conductor who leads two orchestras, I'm also responsible for the artistic well-being of my, the musicians and also the society and also my other, other fellow musicians, people like yourself that I need to be aware that I need to always constantly be trying to open up more opportunities where it's possible for people to come and continue to express themselves, but also, you know, to, to have a livelihood. It's using the orchestra as a system of social well welfare for those who are interested in having the welfare of society's souls. I know everyone's having the conversations, but they have more questions and answers. Do you remember me telling you about that program I did in Spain with no uh, program and that we didn't announce anything that was on the concert and that people just had to come into the hall and they sat down and got a whole concert of music and on the way out, they got the program. 
the premises of that project was expectation, but it was also the fact that our art form, its birthright is spontaneity. It is creativity in the moment. I mean, it's certainly the live performance. There's no substitute for it. A million things happen on the stage, blissfully, wonderfully, that were completely unplanned. And that's why the live performance will never die away, because that's exciting to watch that evolve and happen in real time without, well, sometimes catastrophes, but mostly without. And actually, uh, I was trying to implement the idea that we need to be a little bit more flexible and a little bit less rigid in our structures when I opened my last season in Spain. So it's no surprise that we're able to quickly open up and get moving because I've been trying to foster this idea. Sure, you need to be able to plan everything you're doing. We need to know when this conductor's coming and that solos, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, our art form is alive. So then if the moment like coronavirus has come, it's upended all the plans. I mean, I keep thinking to myself on some days, I remember what the, the old saying, you know, man plans, God laughs. And I'd see all the wonderful machinations and designs that I made for my season, and all these little threads and, oh, we're going to do this and do that. It's, it's out the door. But now that it's out the door, what can you put in its place? Actually, I find that very exciting. And I think it is more fresh. It can be very relevant. And if, if people dare to, to go out on a limb artistically, I think it's something tremendous that our art form has desperately actually needed for a long time. We're so, you know, we, we know how marred our profession is and rituals and traditions and contract legalese and union arrangements and circumstances of I will do this, I won't do that, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it's from top down in our, in our profession. Here you are at a circumstance where none of the previous agreements work. But the truth of the matter is, in my personal opinion, the situation we're in right now in principle with the, the changing environment and, and the lack of vision and the fact that we, we are at struggle to be relevant has nothing to do with coronavirus. This has been a fight that we have been dealing with for a long time. Coronavirus has brought some of these issues that were simmering to a full boil right to the front door. And so, yes, of course, there are circumstances. Coronavirus has literally shut down your country, for sure. There's no way around that. But outside of that, what are you going to do as soon as you are given one inch to get back? And our structure is not really in place in order to address that quickly. It's not at all. And that has been at the root of so many of the elements of our art form for the longest time. That, that inability to be flexible or make quick decisions to be of service to the public in real time, that has influenced all of the decisions for as long as I can think about, as long as I've been in the profession. And we make incremental changes. But I'm going to take a look at YouTube and something like that. I mean, how long did it take for somebody to get up on YouTube and do a concert? The last time a symphony orchestra or our art form was involved in any real technological advances was the LP and the CD. That was the last time. We want to claim that Zoom is something that we've done. No, no, Zoom was here before us. We had nothing to do with that. Now, that's not to say that there are not innovations being made, but we haven't really been on the forefront of that. We've been really reluctant to be able to get on board with some of those things. And people looking at something like the Berlin Philharmonic Digital Platform, which is incredible and amazing, and saying, oh, but yes, isn't that a terrible idea, though? It saturates the marketplace, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, I don't know the last time you were with the Berlin Philharmonic, but I never see a lack of people in that hall. 
because there's still a need for the live concert. So that that uh, that expression that people say, oh well, we don't want to put the content out there on the online because people will just stop coming to the concert. That's a bunch of bollocks, <laughs> you know. In terms of daily life, though, away from work, I think the thing that we've all found, certainly for those of us who have been in real lockdown, suddenly other occupations, other interests, other ways of accessing culture have become relevant. And so therefore has food. Now, I am currently looking on a screen at two of the biggest foodies I've ever met. So how have you coped with the food aspect of, of this period? Have you, have you had to carve up who's doing the cooking? You all know Robert Trevino as a great maestro, uh, but now you're about to find out that he is one of the most phenomenal cooks in the world. That's a little too much. No, it's not, because I go around the world and I have Michelin star meals in different countries. I believe I can validly have the right to say that you are one of the best cooks in the world. Oh, sure. We haven't had to have any fights over, uh, well, who's going to cook tonight? Because Robert's always cooking, and so lucky me. <laughs> you know, Jennifer, when I, when I used to, when I was taking like a, my little 10-day vacation every year, which is about all I ever allow myself, we would usually go up to a cabin or so in northern Michigan, Julia and I, and with maybe our family. And it, it, the car is packed adequate boxes of wine and uh, liquor, my cigars, um, my cast iron skillet, and my four types of olive oil, and my whole box full of spices, and my knives, and things like that. And if I'm on vacation for 10 days, I will cook 29 meals. I always kind of wake up grumpy. I'm like, I don't want to cook today. I'm not going to cook. And then as soon as I step into the kitchen, I immediately go, ooh, look at that. I'm going to make this with that. And then I go to town or I walk into the, I say, oh, I don't want to make dinner tonight. And then I'm walking through the grocery store or through the market and I see a beautiful piece of fish and I go, oh, I'm going to make this and I'm going to do. And I rarely ever repeat what I make and I never use recipes. I love it because I love to cook. So I've been very happily cooking every day. We went, please don't be too jealous, but we went out to a restaurant for the first time yesterday after quite a few weeks. Yeah, two months. Because we, even though we were allowed to go out to restaurants, I felt it wasn't right for me to do that. The orchestra being open was my primary goal. That's why I stayed here. Julie, you remember, Julie and I had a plane ticket back to the United States, and we also had one going to Spain, and we were sitting there at breakfast discussing where we were going to go. My friend Wei Han was looking to going to through Casablanca to get to, to get to Washington D.C. and you were talking about you know getting Greta Thunberg and getting her to give you a ride down the back to the U.K. on a boat. Everybody was looking at different things, and then we realized that our, we would be of service here in Malmo, so we decided to stay here. And um, it, and it didn't take us very long. I mean, we were fortunate that our apartment here was being renovated, it was getting fixed, it was being ready. And uh, right after your concert with us, I mean, the next day we were, we were starting to sleep in our apartment here, but all we had was a bed, two towels and a pan and some forks and knives, plastic forks and knives and yeah. stuff like that. And we ate on the, the dinner counter and it was fine. And now we have an actual full on place and everything is here. It's really comfortable and I've been loving to cook. I've been having such a good time with it. And it's much healthier too. I think that's something that's come as a surprise to many is that if you cook for yourself, you generally eat better than if you eat ready meals. Have you had any food shortages of any kind? Only the first day when everything started, when everybody started going panicking, 
uh, in Sweden, the only thing I think we saw a little, a little shortage of, and it wasn't really a shortage, it was dried pasta. We didn't have variety, let's put it that yeah. way. There wasn't, a, there wasn't six different types you could buy. It, everybody had bought the other five types and then just a regular old spaghetti was left. So, but there was still plenty of them and that was fine. That was it. That was the only time we, we saw anything. And you could, of course, I, I have to admit, I mean, in our situation, we were moving into an apartment that didn't have any food. We didn't have anything in here. And the hotel at the Mama Line that we were staying at, the day after you left, they had changed, they shut the breakfast down. And they started doing where you had to order it in a room service style. And they were going to bring you just a, a box breakfast with yogurt and things like that. But all the restaurants started closing immediately. So in our case, we were staying in a hotel. We weren't in a very good position because otherwise I mean, we would have found food somewhere. But there were all the restaurants and things were closed. So we went out to the grocery stores and we just went to town very quickly. And we, we got quite a few bags. And we were maybe a little bit more... Uh, aggressive about that than I think we'd ever had been about going to grocery shop, but it was just simply because there were we knew that there were soon going to be zero options for us, and for the first few weeks there were zero options because everything did actually just flat out close down because people had a a very valid and justified knee jerk reaction. But have yeah. you been cooking all your recipes that you have in your book? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the notes from Musicians' Kitchen's recipe resources clearly food from all over the world. And some of it involves ingredients that quite simply cannot be accessed here in the UK at the moment. As for bread flour, if anyone finds any, you could sell it on eBay for about £100 for a bag at the moment because it's like finding the, the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. Bread, Strong bread flour is become like the holy grail. People are doing so much baking at home. There's also, therefore, shortages of yeast. Do you want us to mail you some? No, I'm fine, really. I've got some, actually. I'm glad to say. I haven't used it yet, actually, though, because there's just Ruby and I in the house. And I've found that because I like my own cooking, that my waistline is suffering. And therefore, although I'm eating more healthily, I'm eating a lot more than I normally would. And I'm doing less. So it's not necessarily a good idea to go out and start baking fresh bread every day, for instance, because then I'd have to eat it. In the first week, you have a lot of emotions going around, and Julie was like, I need cookies, I need cookies, I need cookies, I need cookies. Actually, I think the first thing I did when I got my first cancellation in the States, I went to the breakfast hall at the hotel and I found myself a chocolate muffin, and I said, That's it, I am eating my emotions now. And that's pretty much where I was for about two weeks. Um, you know, transitions have always been tough for me. And well, this was quite a transition. So we moved into our, uh, our apartment. And of course, the first thing we go grocery shopping, what was my priority? Ingredients for chocolate chip cookies. And yeah, I was buying, you know, fry, uh, the dried rice, dried pasta, all these things. I'm, you know me, I'm very practical. But it's hard being in a new country whose language you don't speak and trying to figure out, for instance, what is baking powder? <laughs> it was a lot of uh, me doing Google Translate in the aisles of the grocery stores. In terms of coping, though, and I hope you don't mind me mentioning it, Robert, but given your background, given your upbringing, as somebody who grew up not having very much at all, having to live with very basic means, you're actually the probably the best equipped person I know for coping through a crisis of this nature. 
So sometimes people say, oh, you know, upbringings are less relevant. But I think in this instance, yours is very relevant. Would you agree? <laughs> I, it's nice that you say that. And I, I do agree with that. When we moved into this apartment uh, and we didn't have anything inside of here except for a few things and eating our simple olive oil pasta with canned tomatoes you know, on the counter and stuff like that, I, I was perfectly fine because I, I just don't need that much. I'm very happy to have a lot like everybody else. <laughs> I don't mind my 2005 Chateau Akin or whatever, but if I don't have it again and it's down between priorities, you know me well enough. I my my priorities are pretty pretty straight, and they're they're the things I care about, and they're very high on my list. And then everything else just really quickly drops off. And even if it looks like something I care about, I don't really give a crap. I don't need to have the nice suit. I don't need this or do that. I need to make music. I need to have my family be safe, and I need to have enough in order to be able to fill my belly and not be out on the street. And that is fine. And in fact, actually, I said to Julia. It was funny because I think, uh, you know, you know me as also like a very, very crazy planner, meticulous about all of my planning of everything. And this has been the opposite of that. And initially, I mean, the very, very beginning of it, I was using my planning skills to try to get ahead of the situation. But then once it, once it all was going down and the realities were settling in a bit, it took me about a day to get my head around it. I just kept barreling on through like I usually do. But then I realized this is actually okay. Why? Because when I was growing up as a kid, there was no regularity to anything. You didn't know when, when dinner was. You didn't know what was going to happen that day. You didn't know if you know your dad lost his job. You didn't know. You didn't know anything. You only could count on a couple of basic things: mom and dad love you. You love your mom and dad and your brother and sister, and you're going to be okay as long as you're together. Everything else, screw it. It's going to change. It's going to be what it is. And I, I have never really got, I've never gone far from that. And when all the changes start happening, actually, I said to Juliet, my upbringing has allowed me to be able to do this fine, because actually, I'm quite okay with not knowing. I've gotten accustomed to knowing what's coming in two years from now, and Tuesday, 27th of September in 2022, I've gotten used to knowing what that day is going to look like two years early, but I'm also okay with it the other way around. And frankly, this is actually one of the other things that I... I, I Coming back to that other point about how our profession has really missed the mark in many ways, that we think that there are certain things that are so absolutely important to doing what we do that aren't really that important. And when you take a look at the fact that, okay, we did some live things with the Mama Symphony Orchestra, were they to disc ready for release? Well, no, not by the standards of having 15 takes for the same chord and things like that that we do for editing of CDs. So yeah, there are mistakes on there, but who gives a crap? I don't hear one person, didn't see one comment, didn't get one email of, oh my God, you know, that really wasn't very tidy in that spot. No, nobody said that. You know why? Because they said, you're playing music. How lucky and how amazing. And thank you so much. And so all of this crap that we have built into our profession as, you know, requirements and contracts and things like that, they have only bogged us down and, 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 and put us further away from the real purpose of what we're trying to do. Now, that's not to say that we can't strive for the absolute perfection. I mean, you know me well enough to know I'm a perfectionist at heart. So that's not the point, though. But the, the real point of our art form is communication. It's being there for other people and showing shared humanity, saying it's okay. In the case of a, a piece of music like a rock Second Symphony, saying it's okay to be depressed. 
and it is possible to overcome that. And that you being depressed is okay because I am the same way and we are the same because we are humans together. We're all part of this. Nothing that has been felt is new. So take courage in knowing that you are amongst a very, very big brotherhood across our species. That's the whole point about Notes from Musicians' Kitchens as well. It's about bringing the community together, which is, I think, more important than ever. And in fact, talking about sort of growing up, I think a lot of us are reverted back also to eating food from childhood. Now, in your case, I have never known somebody with a capacity for eating chili at the heat that you can eat it. I, it is quite astonishing. I don't, I don't know how you can taste or function ever again after eating some of the stuff that you do. But have you, have you found yourself desiring sort of slightly Mexican-American food in the way that Julia has chocolate chip cookies? Have you, have you sunk back into sort of more sort of Tex-Mex sort of comfort food? Well, we are in Sweden, so we don't have a lot of those ingredients here. Um, but actually, Julia, for her birthday, because we celebrated that here, uh, we were supposed to be in Sao Paulo, and, uh, but that got cancelled, and we were still here in Mom. Julia said to me, I want your bref- New Mexico breakfast and chiladas, um, which is a very, very specific thing that my great-grandmother from New Mexico used to make for her husband and my grandfather when they would go out to the cotton fields and stuff like that. And so what the New Mexico enchilada is, they used to... You had to always the first meal of the day, which was you would eat it before the sun would come up. And it would be like a little croissant, like a piece of bread with butter. So really simple just to get the digestion going. And then you go out and work a couple hours, come back and then have a real breakfast. Uh, and the first breakfast was like, that's when the whole eggs and bacon thing really comes from. But my grandmother, great grandmother used to make this breakfast enchilada. And they, there's a very specific pepper from New Mexico. It's long, cylindrical, smooth. It has kind of like a mix between the ancho and the guajillo pepper. So it's not smoky, but it has a really rich flavor. And uh, it's not very spicy at all. And you would hydrate those peppers. And then you would gr- um, grind it up with a mortar and pestle, making a paste. And boil that. And then you would take hamburger meat or some type of meat stuff that you would have. You could even do it with refried beans if that was all you had. And you take the tortilla and you would fry it a little bit, dip it in the sauce, lay it flat, put the beans or put the um, beef on it, fresh onions, fresh jalapenos, and then you would put some maybe guaca cheese, and then you would put another tortilla and continue this process until you get to the top, and then you put two sunny side up eggs. And it just, it's really, really rich. You don't need to eat again after that until dinner time. And Julia really wanted that for her breakfast uh, for on her birthday. It took me two bloody weeks to find all the damn ingredients to concoct something that resembled it. So to answer your question, I was craving food from his childhood. And actually, he's craving food from my childhood because I'm in the process of making pizza for him right now. I got the dough rising back there. You're from a very different background, albeit an American background. You're from an Italian American background. So for you, pasta... And pizza is very much front and center in your food world. Yes, I'm blessed. (laughs) I think Robert probably is blessed as well, if that's what you feed him. (laughs) Again, he's been mostly feeding me, so... (laughs) Yeah, I've I've hijacked their their cuisine. I I can make it pretty well now. But the the pizza is something I don't don't do at all. Julia Julia does that. And I want a pizza, please make it for me. So now she's she's finally doing it. It's a pain in her neck, but... Yeah, it's okay. But he's been making dinner for me for the last two months, so I thought, eh, why not? And lunch. I know. <laughs> I actually, 
I actually thought back though to a conversation I had with you in San Sebastian, Robert, and I remember distinctly saying to you when I arrived and you said, well, you know, are there any restaurants you'd like to eat at? And I said to you then, you never know what's going to happen in life. You should always take these chances the first and only time you may ever have them. And we had an incredible meal at Artsakh, which is a bit like you saying about your childhood and the impact of it, that you don't need those things. But actually to have that memory, which is a really special memory um, of eating, certainly for me, the first time I'd ever eaten in a three Michelin starred restaurant, but also having the privilege of meeting Elena Artsak herself and also sharing a meal with some great people. We had such a great night and it's so lovely to have memories like that. And so I'm also living off those slightly at the moment because if they never happen again, that's okay because we did it and we did it all together. So I think that's also a community thing is remembering what we had remembering what we have and hoping that we may get some of it back in the future. Yeah, I, th- I mean, we will get all of it back. It will come. The, the, the only thing, well, I'm, I try to be a little careful about how I talk about everything that's happening now. And, and I wouldn't want anyone to get the wrong impression that I don't feel a, a great deal of empathy for people who have experienced a lot of loss. And I'm not talking about the loss of work and the loss of dignity from that department that I actually I know very intimately I remember those feelings and also being unemployed myself scavenging together a living by selling vacuum cleaners door to door or doing whatever I needed to do to to manage my my life but I'm talking more about the people who have lost lost their lives in this time I'm personally not that afraid of the situation for my own personal health Partially because I try to stay always in a close contact with my mortality. I try to remember on a daily basis that today I'm lucky to be and that to to be alive is the exception. It is not the rule. We will spend most of our time being dead. That's just the nature of our existence as as temporary beings. Now we can hope and we can aspire to the fact that our souls and our, our spirits go on to something else. But if nothing else, we have this. And I was talking to Julie about this and just said the one part of this that is just gut-wrenching. Death is something we all have in common. Something is death that is something that's going, going to occur to all of us. And we don't have a choice then. But when we all, all imagine our death, we imagine them in very different ways. And at the bottom, probably in the most despicable way that we can imagine our deaths being is alone. And that is what this, this disease has done. It has bereave people from the opportunity to experience the greatest transition of a person's life, the ultimate transition. And whether that is being surrounded, and it's one thing when an accident happens, that is exactly what it is. It is a sudden thing. But we all kind of say simultaneously, well, at least it was quick. Oh, at least they didn't suffer. But in the case of COVID, people suffer when they die. They suffer greatly and they suffer alone. The people who want to be there with them can't. And I think that is the cruelest aspect of this this disease. For those of us who are healthy and at home and not alone, uh, we can take solace in seeing that this isolation has nothing to do with trying to stay healthy, but it is trying to maintain and to mend our relationships with those who we wish to pass with. And I see that in my case with being with Julia, that we almost were separated during this time because she would have gone back to the United States to do a concert, but we were lucky that we were able to stay together. I'm grateful for that. And I know that I'm not going to see my family in the United States for a year. 
I won't see them until December uh, because there's very low likelihood of managing to, to get back until that time. And I miss them greatly, but they're all with each other. And so then I, I feel I'm comfortable with that. And I think to myself, somebody, you know, I'm going to Spain in two weeks. And I, I spoke with one person yesterday and they said, oh, my God, don't you feel like you're going into a danger zone? And I said, my life will come to an end one way or the other. I don't have a choice on when or how that's going to be. And I don't mean to say this in a glib way, but I can choose how I live my life. And if I have the possibility to live my life in service of my fellow man with my art form, I will do that. And I will die by that as well. And I hope I don't die by that. But I certainly intend to live by that. Talking about dying. I mean, there's not much you can say after hearing something like that from someone. So let me just stop the recording and then just chat. Thank you to Robert and Julia for joining me and speaking so movingly and openly about the lives and deaths that we face. Choosing to be a pioneer isn't an easy road to take, especially during this pandemic, requiring sacrifice and personal commitment and no small amount of courage. Robert and the musicians of the Malmo Symphony Orchestra deserve our collective thanks for keeping live music going for universal benefit in service of our global community. Please support Notes from Musicians' Kitchens by subscribing to our website, www.notesfrommusicianskitchens.com. It's only a tenner and every penny is going to help Musicians UK, a great cause. Make sure to tune in to the next episode where I'll be talking to another music professional about what food means to them and keep an eye on Instagram to discover their identity. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And remember, food is love. <laughs>